Well, hello, I'm here with Liz today, and we're going to talk about how long the day is and other things, but that's the one that I was most interested in today. Um, the day on Earth is getting longer. Originally, it was nine hours or so, and it's gradually getting longer because the moon slows down the Earth. As you would imagine, the moon raises tides, and that creates a sort of friction um, that slows down the Earth's rotation, so the day constantly gets longer, but it has not been constant. What happened is the sun also creates tides on the Earth, and the article confuses me, and I can't find a very clear explanation, but what it seems to say is that the light from the sun causes the atmosphere to expand on the day side of the Earth, and that creates a bulge which the sun pulls on with gravity in such a way as to speed up the Earth's rotation. And I don't quite understand. I would like to see a nice diagram explaining how that can speed it up. But they say the sun speeds up the rotation and the moon slows it down. And the moon's effect is 10 times bigger because it's much closer. So the sun has not mattered, except that in the past, the atmosphere was much thicker and much warmer. So the sun's effect was much larger. And the other thing, which I thought was really interesting, is the sun's effect has a, when it moves some atmosphere, that creates a sort of sound wave that rotates around the earth. And that takes 10 hours to go around the earth. So there was a point millions of years ago when the day was 19.5 hours and the sun's effect was much larger. And because it was synchronized with the time it takes it to go around, uh, the sun's effect on the day was enough that it would completely um, resonate with two cycles around the Earth, that made the sun's effect much more amplified, and it locked the Earth into a 19.5-hour day for a long time, because it amounted to an effective tidal lock between the effect of the sun and the moon. But eventually, uh, we, I think because of the atmospheric changes, the sun's effect got weaker, and so we went to where we are now, where we're up to 24 hours, and it will gradually get longer and longer. Anyway, I thought that was very interesting, and I That's would like to see cool. a nice... Yeah, I'd like to see a nice cartoon diagram or something showing how all that works. Anyway, we're, in, we're understanding how the Earth's uh, climate better and better through the process of performing an undesirable experiment on it. But anyway. Um, how long uh, did it take us to get from 19 hours to what we're at now? Oh, many millions of years. Wow. Uh, it's It's been... Uh, you know, it's been four and a half billion years for all this to happen. And we're beginning to understand how planet formation works. The uh, early ideas have all proven to be wrong. And uh, they were just talking to Caitlin about this about a month ago. They've now found the, there's been a lot of theories based on Bode's law and stuff from long ago that, that the Earth's, the, the solar system is the natu way it naturally should be with the rocky planets near the sun and the gas giants away from the sun. And that turns out to be completely wrong. That is not even the most common. Now that they found all these extrasolar systems, they have all kinds of crazy patterns. Gas giants all over the place, rocky things all over the place, the things in reverse order. Ours is not even the most common arrangement. So wow. all the old bottles of uh, planet formation are thrown out and they're inventing new ones. And another thing, which is very, when I was a kid in the 70s, Velikovsky was a popular theory. This crazy Russian had this theory that the solar system had formed like pool balls. One Jupiter had vanished and hit Mars and then Venus hit Earth and then the moon collided with something. They all bouncing off each other and their orbits are all going crazy and um it sounded just like ridiculous science fiction. And that turns out to be more or less true. The orbits are not stable at all. The planets move large distances. In fact, they're very unclear how they could possibly be as stable as long as they've been. Anyway, it's uh, interesting stuff if you like astronomy. That is Mike, interesting. 
my father never cared about any of this like Sherlock Holmes. He said, well, what difference does this make? I've got work to do and I'll be dead before any of that happens. So who cares? But I always cared. <laughs> anyway, uh, you've got an Amazon person stealing money. Yeah, this is a pretty interesting story for a number of reasons. Um, this uh, former Amazon manager uh, in um Georgia was uh, basically got in trouble for stealing almost $10 million from Amazon by uh, running fake vendor in invoices, which is interesting because this has been a scam for at least 40 years, if not longer. Uh, and it's interesting to me that in this day and age, for one of our, our biggest, most surveillance-heavy uh, big tech companies, it can still happen, and to the tune of $9.4 million, um, which is, is pretty wild. And, uh, <laughs> you know, not not content to get in trouble for this, after the, the person got in trouble for the fraudulent invoices, they doubled down. Uh, they got out on bail. And this was the, the she had drafted like other employees into this scam who got caught as well. And then while two of them were out on bond, they uh, got a job at another place at at a um, another, like a franchising company. And uh, the company had found out about the fraud charges from Amazon, and so these people forged documents with a, a federal judge's signature and clerk's signature on them saying that it, it had all been dismissed and everything was fine and then just gave the forged documents to the new company which they found out uh but that's some pretty next level crime well you know this is the way it works i mean i watch tv shows and you know they often have this uh this I think quite realistic scenario that once you bump somebody off, then this becomes your go-to solution for everything. You know, once you mm -hmm. started doing something and it worked, you say, "Well, this, the first thing I think of, well, we'll forge a document that'll fix everything." Yeah, though you you might argue that the last strategy wasn't too effective since they got caught. <laughs> yeah, I think like like gamblers with the system, they always uh, say, "Well, that doesn't count. I nearly got away with it." Yeah. Anyway, um, so Mastodon has a critical vulnerability. I'm using it for a while instead of Twitter, like most information security people, and it's got a root. You gain root control over the server by just uploading a media file. So they found this and supposedly they patched it. So anyway, but that's interesting. Um, I haven't tried running a Mastodon server yet. That might be sometime in the future, although lately it's all threads. Um, Meta made their Twitter killer called Threads, and it immediately got like million, 10 million signups the first day or something. It's huge. Although the signup rate for Mastodon did not go down. So I think Mastodon is pretty much the hippies that are not going to jump under any corporate thumb. And, you know, <laughs> deciding that you hate Twitter and moving to Meta would require a very strange concept of risk. I mean, if there's any company that's even more unethical and least less trustworthy than Elon Musk, it's Zuckerberg. <laughs> so uh, I think it is drawing people from Twitter who really don't care about being under the thumb of a corporate oligarch, but just object to the fact that Twitter doesn't work anymore. <laughs> anyway, um, and uh, 
Musk is suing them, claiming that they they hired one of his ex-engineers who used proprietary secrets to make threads. And so it goes on. But anyway, um, uh, the Mastodon continues to work fine. I don't know why people say it's difficult to use. It's just that there aren't very many people. It's not the same experience as what it used to be. Twitter used to be like being at a crowded party with a lot of people to talk to. Mastodon is more specialized for one purpose, at least in my experience, just information security. So it's what Twitter was in the really early days when it was just nerds on there. Anyway, um, let's go on. You've got uh, yeah this idea that you make a school that doesn't want to hire teachers now. Who would do a thing like that? I know it's shocking, isn't it? Uh, you know, and we've joked about this over time where college, the, the ideal school for college administrators would involve no teachers and ideally no students, just administrators collecting money all the time. <laughs> and we may be one step closer to that. Uh, hey, uh, uh, an AI uh, expert at UCI Berkeley at UC Berkeley has uh, spoke to the the Guardian was telling them that you know it uh, is actually quite reasonable that teachers could be uh, concerned uh, that AI is going to be um, replacing certain teaching jobs because as this guy pointed out um, his name is Stuart Russell. Um, as he pointed out, uh, existing AI could uh, potentially deliver most material through the end of high school. Um, and he did say that humans would still play a role, but it'd be different from traditional teaching uh, duties. Um, now, I have mixed feelings on this. Uh, I think that yeah, it could be used for some things, but um, there's a long way to go before it's going to be able to replace a teacher. And and the interesting thing to me in this was the K-12 angle. Now, I don't know if this guy just said this because he works at a university, but um, for me, I would think it's almost the opposite uh, because a lot of, and especially in the um, elementary school uh, years um, in the, you know, K through eight years, um, elementary and middle school, that uh, I, I think you really need a human element there. And if you're going to, if you think you're going to get a classroom full of six-year-olds to sit quietly and absorb everything they need to from uh, an AI uh instance, uh, that may be a tall, that may be a tall order. Well, you know, I remember what the uh, prize-winning teacher in New York City said after he'd been a teacher for like 30 years in, in grade school. He said, you know, you can learn everything you need to know, reading, writing, arithmetic, in like one to two hours a day. And the only reason we have these kids all day is state-sponsored babysitting so the parents can work. And we're just making up garbage to waste time, which is totally the impression I had going through it. it yeah. I, I don't know. I think something like the Khan Academy, which is basically AI, would have done far more valuable, been far more valuable for me than what actually happened in in K through twelve. I mean, I found I K through twelve to just be prison. I think that yeah, and I think the ability for one of the big things for me is the ability to test out. You know, you you expect kids to sit through material that they already know. I remember being in first grade, and we were supposed to like 
copy a story off the board and I was and it was meant to teach you basic writing but I already knew that so I was so bored that I would get in trouble because I'd make up different fonts like different handwriting fonts and do the story of that because at least I would entertain myself somewhat that doing it that way but no you weren't you weren't supposed to do that and uh I think there are a lot of kids like that where they're really bored uh, and learning material that they already know. Um, and, and by the same token, there are kids coming in with deficits who need remedial help that they're not getting. And that that adaptive adaptive testing could go a long way towards helping that, I think. Um, you know, the other area where I think AI could come in handy as a teacher myself, you know, there's a bank of questions that I end up answering over and over and over again every semester. And they're the same questions. And I have thought to myself, you know, there could be a chat bot for this. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, ChatGPT is quite good at technical questions. Yes. Now, where I think in a college environment, this is not maybe the best thing is uh is in in areas of nuance or you know where you know you might have a a mind expanding classroom discussion about something that's not not directly um a topic that's not in the syllabus that's related to what you're studying or if you're um maybe working on philosophical stuff or like higher, higher level thinking or, um, uh, you know, developing de some development of new areas of study in, in higher ed. Some of those areas, like, I think you're still going to need a human. Um, I think, I think a lot of the time, um, and, and this, this probably will change as models adapt and get more trained. I think a lot of the time um, there's a real lack of context and you need a human to be able to contextualize things so the student is going to be able to understand it. But that may change over time. Yeah, well, I think ultimately it's just another tool and mm -hmm. uh, the, the trick will be to use it skillfully. And I'm going to try next week. Next week I'm teaching high school students all week. And that's a group I find very hard to relate to because most of them are not interested in learning. They've been forced to be there by somebody else. Mm. They they are basically convicts on a chain gang. And I, I'm not very good with people like that that aren't actually motivated and don't want to learn. I remember last time I started by asking, why are you here? What's your interest in this? And one girl said, I have no interest in this. My mom made me come. Yeah. And, well, so I'm going to start by trying to find out why they're there and see if I can figure out any way to help them. But they are going to start with AI. And then they're going to be using AI all through. We're using these chat engines and we'll see how, I want to see if I, if it can help. Uh, mm -hmm. That's my most difficult teaching assignment is trying to reach high school students. So I, I did, I dropped out of high school. I couldn't stand being one and I can't stand teaching them either because it's, it's prison. Yeah. And college is much better. People are in your class because they actually want to learn the stuff. It's a whole different thing. Most, most of the time. Most of the time they that's are. True. That's yes. true. There is one class at my college where they, people take it to knock off their hated science requirement. And I only liked that one in the really early days when it was exciting. After it was the after you have passive resistance and they hate it, then it's not a fun class to teach. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I wonder too, I think that's another way you might be able to leverage AI. I think one thing that is good about the way that your classes are structured is that 
It doesn't make anyone sit through stuff they already know. But if they don't know it, then it gives them that earlier starting point to get the foundational knowledge they need. Um, and I think that's a way that I think that's an area where we could apply AI and teaching as as far as like helping fig people figure out what what level of aptitude they're at, like helping them assess what what they don't know and what they need to learn and maybe even targeting, you know, again, as we get down the road, being able to target certain exercises or assignments to their directly to their interest. Like this is what I used to do with high school students where day one, we'd sit down and I would try to key in on what their interests are, because I figured out if I could tie what we were, the technical skills that we were learning to what their own personal interests were, whether that's video games or you know, uh, starting a business to sell things online, um, that it, I'd get a lot further with teaching the technical skills, which I get it. I'm, I'm the same way. If I'm, if I see no application for what I'm learning, I'm much less motivated to learn it. So, yeah. Okay. Well, maybe that'll help. All right. And, um, Let's see, that was down here. Right, right. So uh, there's been a ruling from the Supreme or from a state court that the government cannot talk to social networks about their content. And this is the right wing thing that uh, right wingers are censured on high big tech things, you know, because they can't say that Donald Trump won the election, that the voting machines are all rigged, that COVID vaccine doesn't work. And they see that as political censorship. So they wanted a ruling, which is being appealed, saying they have to knock it off. And at first, I, I heard this typical sort of left-wing statement that this is horrible. They're like uh, oppressing us. But then when I really read the details of the document, it sounds much more reasonable. They're prohibited from communicating with social media companies for urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing the removal, deletion, suppression, or reduction of content containing protected free speech. But there are exceptions and the exceptions are really quite good. Um, they can uh, communicate an effort to detect uh, malicious cyber activity or um, reduce posts that are not protected by free speech. So it's, I do understand the concern. And unfortunately, this is, you know, during the last, during a couple of years of the pandemic um, and the time on Trump administration, I was generally in favor of the, uh, the, the desire to crush this rampant disinformation everywhere. But the problem is, to some extent, it is just suppressing the other side's political speech. For example, Hunter Biden's laptop. They totally suppressed it. They said it was Russian disinformation, and it wasn't Russian disinformation. It was true, and yet it got crushed. And so they're kind of right that if, if Biden has a ministry of truth and he can go to Facebook and say, you have to take this down because it doesn't pass our government test for yeah. truth, that really is a problem. So it's... um. This reminds me of, I listened to the Next Level podcast, and it was all gay and lesbian people saying they really don't mind that ruling, saying you can discriminate against gay and lesbian people when making websites. Say people are freaking out, but the fact is, why should someone be compelled to make a statement they don't want to make? Because there, there's, anyway, it's, um, the, the knee-jerk leftist response requires a little more reflection, I think. That, and I'm not sure I would want to hire someone to do a job for me that actively hates me and who I am and what I'm about. <laughs> what well, could yes. be wrong? 
but it, but in fact, the 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 argument is they were not saying that they would put up a sign and refuse to serve gay and lesbian people because that would be illegal. What they were going to be refused to do was to put statements on a website that they found morally objectionable. Mm-hmm. And that's not really the same thing. And uh, so anyway, it, it's these kind of subtleties. Uh, I would like to see more discussion of these subtleties. I like our political discussion to get back to actually considering the details of the case and trying to find the right answer instead of trying to as quickly as possible figure out which side you're on and then punch you if you're on the other side. Well, and it's interesting because I was reading a story this morning from uh, Ken Klippenstein about uh, the way that the FBI had hired a a social media surveillance firm to monitor uh, groups on social media like Black Lives Matter and and so on, mm-hmm. and then essentially lied about it uh, and said, you know, that's that's outside of our authority. We don't monitor social media, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> I remember after nine eleven, they sent people to like park surveillance vans and take photographs of all the people going to the mosques. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very similar. And you can see how they they think they're protecting us. But this is the reason why we have Fourth Amendment and stuff, because these attempts to protect us in this manner rapidly turn into government oppression. Right. Uh, And, uh, you know, they they, came out in that story that. uh, It came out in that story that (laughs) there was one uh, situation where. the FBI had contacted um, one of these uh, BLM people's parents and told them that she'd better not attend the uh, RNC, which she hadn't planned to attend at all. But uh, some some uh, troll accounts on Twitter had said that that they were going to go and have a violent protest or something. And so the FBI picked up on that and, you know, went to talk to this person in real life, talk to their their relatives in real life, which is pretty wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So so there is a real issue of government overreach. The the protesters are not completely just full of nonsense. Unfortunately, a lot of what they say is nonsense. That's why it's, it's hard to figure out what to do in politics when people are saying garbage most of the time, but there is some truth mixed into it. And I just don't think you can, I don't think that you can separate fake news from real news anymore because who's the, who's the arbiter of that? Well, sometimes it's pretty obvious, but, um, and this is how we ended up where we are. We just let rampant, let the entire Fox news be the number one source of news. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's because it's lies that it's so popular. They don't bother telling the truth. They just say something exciting, whether it's true or not. And that's, mm-hmm. of course, more popular. Well, and then you have our own government lying to us, and you never know what is real and what's propaganda there. Well, I think I think not to the same extent. Um, oh, but, no, well, I mean, maybe. I, I, I guess we don't know. We don't really know. Well, on topics where you do know, like science, it, it, you could tell. I mean, I think some people can tell, but I don't think it's obvious to everyone. No, that's the problem. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. 
that's the problem. Most people just hear the media and they just believe whatever they hear because they're busy and they're not an expert and they don't care. Like this is why they explain why most Russians support Putin because they just believe what they see on TV because they're busy and they don't pay much attention and they just believe the propaganda. Well, and then, you know, one of them I think about is, is the famous like line that masks don't work when the real thing was, was that they didn't want people to make a run on masks and deny it, you know, take them all so the healthcare folks couldn't get any, which well, makes there's, sense. Well, there's actually a lot more to it than that. In mm-hmm. the early days, they said that masks would not work because they didn't understand how COVID spread. And so there was a traditional, I found that's why I had a big argument with Caitlin about this. She said, the Fauci never said masks don't work. And I said, he totally did. And I went back and found the article because there was longstanding tradition, longstanding medical statement from the CDC saying, we do not recommend the use of masks outside healthcare settings because they really won't prevent the spread of like the flu out there. And uh, um, so, I mean, there, there were standard truisms. And in the early days, they didn't really understand how the spread of COVID was different than the spread of these other diseases. Anyway, the, the, that was the thing that the recommendation kept shifting. But I don't think they were deliberately lying to us, except there was a point when they actually said what you said. They said, well, we told you masks don't work to save it for the people who need it more. And that but, is really dishonest and manipulative. I mean, that's, that's what I'm referring to. I know that really bothered me. That's paternalism, where I will tell you a lie to make you do what I want you to do instead of telling you the truth and right. hoping you'll cooperate. And it really, I think it really, that exactly. And I think it undermines, I think it undermines trust. Oh, absolutely. Uh, trust. Yeah. And I yeah. think that that kind of thing makes people more vulnerable to fake news from I others. It does. No, I think you're right. All right. Well, anyway, um, you've got another way to attack S3 buckets. This is pro was a pretty interesting write up uh, on a uh, on the on the checks marks blog actually about uh, a poisoned um, uh, npm module that uh, that uh, called big num that um, has a really cool way of uh, of of attacking um, unsuspecting any unsuspecting developer that includes it in their project. So essentially, uh, once this uh, once this package gets installed, um, you download it. When you're installing it, you, you download a binary. Um, and uh, it was initially hosted on an, uh, an S3 bucket, and it would uh, it would essentially cause the uh it would cause the users who were who were downloading it to um get their uh get all of their um uh information from their endpoint uh uploaded to um uh the, uh, it would make the it would make the bucket that the um, user the that the user was uh, getting their package from um, basically it would uh, set, open an open a backdoor through the um, through the bucket so that the attacker could um, exfiltrate data off the the target's machine. It was pretty cool. 
Yeah, I thought the cool part is you you wait until they delete a bucket and then you purchase a bucket with the same name. Mm-hmm. People trying to load the package go to the yeah. new server. This is like taking over a uh, abandoned domain. Mm-hmm. And you you could argue this is a flaw of Amazon. I mean, they could not reuse names. Yeah, and I you know I had even thought until I saw this that there was some unique identifier that would prevent this kind of thing, but there apparently isn't. Apparently, no, and and they have this long identifier with a bunch of random letters. They could mm-hmm. have enough of them that you never reuse them, or at least not for years. But they apparently let you just choose one identical to one that's been abandoned, and that's not a good practice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anyway, there was an article on Ars Technica about the weather, which I think is is really notable. I heard that July 4th on the Lola News, July 4th was the hottest day planet Earth has ever had, as long as we've been keeping records. And uh, it's clear now, I think the evidence is pretty much undeniable that not only is global warming much worse than expected, but that we have hit those tipping points that the more scary scientists were saying that it's not a linear process. There's a point when you move over a cliff and do something awful like melt the ice caps that has a huge effect, much larger than the incremental change. And we're clearly going through that. I mean, the weather extremes are outrageous and they're getting much worse very fast. So we're in the process of falling down some kind of uh, of cliff to a different kind of climate. And uh, so anyway, we really need to stop burning all this fossil fuel. And, and we also need to put great effort into adapting to climate change we're far beyond being able to stop it. And we're down to having to build dikes around our our low-flung cities and better cooling for homes in Texas and stuff like that. It's pretty outrageous. We're lucky here in the Bay Area this time. A couple of years ago, we were getting all the smoke. Now we're not getting the smoke or the heat, but I'm sure our turn will come. Right. But in Texas, the heat is becoming unbearable and the power grid is failing. And I guess the power grid stayed up because of solar. But anyway, it's um, most of the nation is undergoing horrible weather right now. And it looks like it's going to get a lot worse. So anyway, on that cheerful note, uh, I think that's all we have today. And I'll have another one of these on Tuesday.